Coming up on Life is a Festival. Most people who are in prison, they don't even know it. They're imprisoned by their thoughts. Yeah, I was just in the, the other type of prison. Not only was I imprisoned by my thoughts, I was in the physical prison. But the majority of people are actually in prison anyway. They just don't know it. They're imprisoned by the constructs of their mind and their blueprint, the way they're hardwired. You know, they're completely attached to it. So I started to break this down very, very slowly. And it was a long, slow process. It didn't happen overnight. There wasn't any magical moments of, oh, that's it, I'm there. No, it happened over years. Over thousands and thousands of hours of, of meditation, of observing, of daily practice, of going through months of standing in the center of my room. Maybe some days I'd stand there for two hours having to fight myself to do this practice, but I did it. And that was the way I gained mastery over my mind. And then that was when the bliss started to come. And that was also then when the breakdown started to happen. So before I could actually even get into a place where the healing could be done, I had to get myself into a place where I even loved myself. Hello, my friends and fellow travelers. Welcome back to Life is a Festival. I'm your host, Eamon Armstrong. If you've spent time in the Spanish island of Ibiza, you may have discovered a strange movement practice nestled deep in the countryside. This practice, called Primal Moves, was created by Nick Brewer, who is today's guest on the show. And Nick has quite the personal biography. On the show, Nick shares his story from his time as an alpine skier to smuggling cocaine in South America and to his isolation in the bowels of an Argentinian prison. Nick talks about discovering yoga and building a daily practice in prison, and he shares his deep insight from breakdown to breakthrough. Finally, he describes developing the technique of primal movement and how the practice has gone global with the help of passionate burners. Nick Brewer is the founder of the movement space Primal Moves in Ibiza, which has become home for a large community of movers from an array of backgrounds around the world. This community is now spreading across the Americas and Europe. Professional hand balancers, performing artists, and yogis, mums and dads have all been enjoying the vast benefits that come from the practice. And now, here is Nick Brewer. For the people listening to this show right now, if you could transmit a vibe, a lesson, a message, what would be the biggest win for this podcast? Uh, my biggest win, the message that I'd really like to get out there, is forming your life around a disciplined daily practice. Ooh, I love a disciplined daily practice, but I'm not that disciplined. I have it all worked out, and when I do it, I feel great. And then I travel and you're like, ah, I just, oh, I, there's so many excuses. I went out last night. I think the daily part is really important, right? So it's the hardest. That's the hardest. You know, yeah. to do a practice, it feels good to do it from time to time, but the daily, every day. For, for you, is the daily practice first thing in the morning? Is that important or does it not matter where during the day? It doesn't really matter. It used to be. It would always be set time, set place, same practice. That was to build the foundation and the discipline. And then it moved on from that. I still have a daily practice. Most of it is done on a mat, but a lot of it is now done in my head. Ooh. But I built the discipline for the practice on a mat. I mean, I meditate, and I guess that's sort of like watching my mind and 
becoming embodied, but I think of practice as a doing, as a thing that I'm like forcing myself. Get up in the morning, make the bed, movement, meditation, journaling, like that's my that's exactly. my morning you're ritual. going to do a practice. Mm-hmm. In the end it might be embodied with you. It could be observation, reflection, or constant. But you need to go and do a practice to build that discipline. And then you need to be able to fall in love with the boredom of the practice. Ah. So falling in love with boredom, for me, was key. Because ah. any practice that you do, in the beginning it's novelty. The ego loves it, the mind loves it. It's a whole new thing to explore. Three months in, four months in, the mind will get really bored of that practice. And then the ego is going to justify that, yes, it is completely boring, and maybe we should stop doing it. And you have had a lot of time to explore boredom. <laughs> which, <laughs> quite a few years. <laughs> quite a few years, which we'll talk about today. But first, Nick, welcome to Life is a Festival. I'm so honored to have you here. I've done Primal Movement many times. You know, We've sort of known each other peripherally. I've known your story from others somewhat. And I've thought about having you on the show actually for quite a while. So this is a really nice opportunity to really understand how you created this offering on this beautiful island that's going to be expanding broader in the world. So welcome to the show. I'm super happy to have this conversation with you. Thanks, Aim. It's a real pleasure to uh, be here and sit before you. So as I was getting prepared with your story, I thought an interesting place for us to start would be that moment of depression after your injury. So you were on the UK ski team, you were living in the Alps, you were living a high adrenaline lifestyle, and you were going to be competing potentially in the 92 Olympics. You got in an accident, you broke your back, and you went into a period of deep depression. And considering all the things we're going to talk about today, I'd love to start with a little bit of an understanding of what depression was like for you at that stage in the development of your consciousness. Yeah, so I mean, unless you've been depressed, it's quite hard to understand exactly what it is. But it's when a depression builds up and a void is created in the mind. So imagine I had this idyllic upbringing as a kid, pure adrenaline. I was a pure adrenaline junkie, training eight hours a day, I was competing, I was selected for the team, I was living in the Alps. Life was full of drama, it was full of adrenaline. And then one day that all stops, so a huge void gets created in the mind. There's a blank, there's a vacance there. It's almost like an identity crisis because there's no more identity. You've lost that identity that you created about being the pro skier or whatever it is that you were. So then this void opens up in the mind and there's nothing. So then what do you do with all this energy? It's unchanneled. And that's then what gets depressed because that energy can't move forwards, it's stuck. The void gets created and you go down. And so how did you come out of that first experience of depression in your life? So in all honesty, I don't think I did. Mm. I think I stayed there for around 15 years. Purely because after the accident, I hit the self-destruct switch, which lasted again until I was about the age of 36. When I finished skiing, I was 18 and a half, 19 years of age. So I went on a long journey of self-destruction, purely because of this collapse of identity. You found your way to the south of France, and you were living on a beach. And talking about depression, I mean, there was no going forward. There's nowhere to go. You just lived on a beach. How'd you start selling drugs? (laughs) (laughs) Good question. So imagine you had this pure kid. You had the idyllic teenager, the idyllic lifestyle, pro skier, super fit, super healthy, never took drugs, 
never took drink, didn't understand what women were. And then eight years into this life cycle, it all finishes. I'm depressed, I go to the beach, and I'm picked up like a waif in Australia. I'm literally living on a beach in the south of France in a little place called Antibes, like a tramp. I'm living out of bins. I wanted to be anonymous. I wanted to be completely unknown. Yeah, I wanted to self-destruct and go into a very pitiful, victimized space. And it was there that I got picked up, as I said, like a waif and stray, and I was introduced to alcohol, to weed, to ecstasy, and then money. And then I refound an identity. It was actually a very old friend of mine that I knew from skiing in the Alps that found me on the beach like a tramp and he couldn't quite work out what had happened. And he took me out, cleaned me up, dressed me up and essentially fucked me up. And that was where it all started. That was where my drug career started, was by taking my first ecstasy pill in Antibes. I think people can understand how you might start selling pills. You know, you go to Amsterdam, you get the pills. Like It kind of computes. Yeah, that's exactly what I was doing. I could see myself doing that. I could see a life path where I might do that. Smuggling cocaine in South America seems like a bit of an escalation. <laughs> <laughs> I can't quite put myself there. It's a there. huge jump up the, uh, up the scale, let's put it that way. Well, can you put us in your psyche there? Because you're on the beach, you're discovering drugs and money, that makes sense. You're starting to sell some pills, that makes sense. How did you escalate to that degree where you were actually smuggling cocaine? That seems like a very big step. It was. It was a 10-year step. Okay, Okay. so let me run you through the story. As a teenage kid, I start selling ecstasy pills in all the clubs in Jean Le Pen, Antibes, and Cannes as a young kid. I got beat up by all the bouncers, got beat up by other gangs, but I still continued. Remember, I hit the self-destruct switch. So I'm now selling pills. From selling 10, 20 pills a night turns into me going up to Amsterdam and buying four or 500 and then starting to sell them wholesale. I then pick up a contact in the south of Spain, in Marbella, who says it will buy 500 off you a time. So then I go to Amsterdam, I buy my 500 pills, and I smuggle them all the way down to the south of Spain, in Marbella. I'm now working with this, this kind of gang from London in Marbella, and they're saying to me, look, you're taking like huge amounts of risks dealing in ecstasy. Why don't you come and work with us and get into smuggling? It's far more romantic, there's more money in it and less risk. So I'm now at the age of 20, and I'm just raring to go. So these guys have said to me, look, we're in the uh, hashish game. We buy a lot of hashish from Morocco and we smuggle it to the UK. Super simple. You don't have to get involved in selling or buying. All you've got to do is drive the lorry from the south of Spain to the UK. We'll smuggle the stuff. We'll hide it in the lorry for you. We'll do all the paperwork. It's super simple. We'll give you 10 grand a time and we'll give you a cut of the profit. And that's it. It's that simple. But get out of the ecstasy game because people are getting busted big time. They're spending long times serving in prison. It's just not fun. So I then moved from Antibes to Marbella. So essentially I moved out of the first frying pan into my first fire. A year into smuggling cannabis from southern Spain to the UK, I get busted in Dover with 100 kilos. Wow. Wait, what year was this? This was 1990. 1990, 1991. So now I'm on the cusp of 20 years of age. I don't even have a heavy goods license. I can barely see over the steering wheel of this lorry. And I'm now pulling up to Dover Docks with 100 keys in the back of my truck. Cut a, a long story short, the dog sniffs out the drugs. The guys go in there. They find the drugs. They find the weed, the cannabis. And I get busted. I get taken directly to prison for three years. So I just hit 21. I get through my first three-year sentence. Again, this is probably the worst thing that could ever have happened to me. 
because I'm in a prison with a lot of old gangsters. I'm a 20-year-old kid and I'm around 40 and 50-year-olds that are serving 10, 20, 30 years for murder, armed robbery and big smuggling. So this is where I get my first education into international logistics and smuggling. So after good behaviour, I get let out of prison in London after 18 months. I'm now 22 on the cusp of being 23 years of age. Seven days after my release, I'm now standing on a motorway south of Paris with 700 kilos and a false passport. You move quick. I move quick. So anyway, I then got into the cannabis game. So we formed a team, a gang, and for the best part of the 90s, we became probably the largest cannabis smugglers in Spain. We were a big group from South London, and we started moving hundreds of kilos, which moved into half a ton, which moved into a ton, which moved into two ton, until in the end we were moving like two or three ton a time. So we had a yacht that was going out onto the Atlantic coast, meeting all the Moroccan fishermen. This yacht would sail around the Med, dropping off half a ton to a ton a time in all the small little private ports. We would have villas rented all out the coastline and articulated lorries coming from the UK to Spain to pick up a ton of time. So we became very big in the cannabis game. By the age of 24, I'm out buying my first houses and starting to learn how to launder money. So this went on for the best part of the 90s. Now you've got to remember, I'm a 20-year-old kid. So I'm now being introduced to earning hundreds of thousands of pounds. And it's quick money. And I'm living the life of Riley. Life is really good. The puff game, the cannabis game was very soft. It was very gentle. There was no violence. There was no power issues. There were no territorial issues. It was very easy. It was very open and everyone earned lots of money. Anyway, towards the end of the 90s, I'm not sure if it was the strategy of the police or that everyone was getting into the cannabis business, but basically the price of cannabis per kilo fell out of bed. So we were cashing out at one point around £1,600 a kilo, and within two months that dropped to 600 So after you've, you've bought your goods and you've shipped it home, you've paid the transport, there was no money in the game. Mm. So I'm now at the end of the 90s, and the cannabis game is essentially finished. But obviously all of us got a, a whole bunch of houses, we've got a lifestyle to live, we've got expensive girlfriends, we're jetting around all over the place, we've got big houses, big cars, and a lifestyle. So we decided to move into the cocaine business. So out of, out of one fire into an even bigger one. So now the stakes completely change. You're talking about sentences which are going from three to four years to sentences which are ranging between 20, 30, and 40 years. You're talking about if there's an issue in the cannabis game, they might have a fight. In the cocaine game, you're going to get shot. So all the stakes change. They multiply. But as well, you're talking about earning not hundreds of thousands, but millions per hit. So we were talking about the adrenaline of the lifestyle as a skier and that that was really satisfying for you and that when you had your accident, you went into this depression and you characterized yourself as being depressed through this entire period. I'm curious, was it some combination of like the adrenaline of the risk that was kind of mitigating the depression? What was the state of your psyche while you were going through these experiences? Okay, so that's a really good point. So in the skiing period, of the 80s, I built up this identity. And I was a complete adrenaline junkie. That was how I thrived to live. When that finished, as I said, the void was created. Drugs, smuggling drugs, selling drugs, alcohol and women, recreated the identity of the adrenaline junkie. It was dangerous, it was fast. But because I'd hit the self-destruct switch, there was also this element of danger that I could lose my life. 
But you wanted to lose your life? Did you feel like there was like a... Yeah. Mm. And the majority of the time, I was actually trying to kill myself. Mm. I was putting myself into really dangerous positions. I was still involved in extreme sports. I was skydiving. I was motocrossing, driving fast cars, sniffing commercial drugs, and hanging out with dangerous women. So yeah, I mean, there was an element to me that didn't really care whether I died or not. I was pretty numb. And the only thing that kind of kept me going was pain. And that could have come in any form. Physical pain, which I was normally getting through quite extreme accidents. You know, the pain that I was suffering from, the adrenaline that I felt from either getting a shipment home or not getting a shipment home. It wasn't about the money, it was about the game and the adrenaline that I got and my addiction to that toxicity. And it sounds like a house of cards that at some point this was all going to fall apart. They all do, yeah. Yeah. All the time. You're on numbered days. It's just how long will you last? How long are you going to reign? That's it, but you will crumble eventually. I, I don't think I've ever known any smuggler to walk away free. Mm. Of all the smugglers that I met, there was probably one or two. But for myself, you know, I was front line, so it was inevitable that eventually that was, my cards were going to crumble. So you moved into cocaine... Was that still in Europe? Because I know that our story will be taking us to South America pretty soon. Tell me about the smuggling. So at the time of being a cannabis smuggler, I was also involved in racketeering. So we were involved in a carousel. And we were selling, buying and selling computer chips. So the, the original Pentium 500 computer chips that came out late 90s, before Google was about, just as computers were really coming into their thing, we became kind of stockbrokers for the Intel Pentium chain of chips. And we were doing maybe half a million pounds a week in buying and selling computer chips and obviously charging the VAT, but we never actually paid the VAT. So 18 months later, after opening and closing five companies, I got a VAT bill for about 64 million, which of course I wasn't going to pay. So as well as the industry of smuggling cannabis was coming to an end, I also had a huge VAT bill, which I couldn't pay and didn't want to pay. So the best option for me was actually to go on the run, which we would have called going on your toes. So the best place for me to go again was South America. There was no extradition, it was too far away, and I just assumed that if I just outside, out of mind, everything was forgotten. You've got to remember as well, I've got like a small asset holding company, I've got a bunch of properties, uh, a few businesses going on, but equally I just didn't care. I just walked away and I went to South America. I landed there in the year 2000 in Argentina, in Buenos Aires. And that was the beginning of my cocaine career. Tell me about the violence. Because that's something that for me, the romance and the glamour of it all seems like it's sexy. And I love drugs, so there you go. The thing is like the violence of that lifestyle, I, I don't really understand it. Obviously, I haven't lived that life. But did you feel like you were in constant danger? Were there rivalries? Were there people getting killed? Was it a violent life? Yeah, the cocaine well was violent, gun violent. So a lot of murders. Myself, I didn't really get involved too much in the violence. I surrounded myself with a lot of good people and a lot of dangerous people. So... I kind of navigated my way through smuggling in an unviolent world, even though it was happening around me. Did I get involved per se too much? No. If I had to, I would, and I'd make an example out of another gangster, but I wouldn't actually be involved in violence on a weekly or day-to-day -day basis as some were. But obviously you have to understand that you're trying to sell 10 million pounds worth of cocaine on the street and you can't afford to lose one penny. 
you need some strong enforcers around you which are going to be able to sell that cocaine and get your cash. Because obviously a lot of people get fucked over. So I delegated. But obviously I am guilty to, yes, inciting violence, but I may have personally not been involved in the actual action of it. But it was a rough world. I mean, when we were in, uh, in the south of Spain, in Marbella, I mean, bodies were turning up in suitcases, they were getting found in rugs, they would get found floating up on the sea. So yeah, it was a dangerous, it was a violent world. I mean, there was a lot of money involved, there was a lot of control, a lot of power, a lot of South Americans and Colombians were involved, and a lot of dangerous people from the UK who kind of ran the European cocaine market. So you were involved in smuggling within South America or from South America to Europe? South America to Europe. I was like a logistics king. So I've been around a lot of people that have been involved in international trade, tires, how to ship, how to work logistics, container shipping. I had a full education on it. I'd just been involved in working with all the articulated lorries out through Europe and I knew how the systems worked, I knew how the customs worked, I knew how the bonds worked, wet and dry bonds, I knew how to pay the EVA, the VAT. So I knew the system fully, so it wasn't actually that hard for me to set up companies to smuggle with. But that was my business, I mean, I was a smuggler. So as I said, I arrived to um, Buenos Aires in 2000. The following four years, I earned a huge amount of money and set up a huge empire, obviously from laundered money, from the cocaine business. I think I reigned in South America for four years. I was based in Buenos Aires. I built a nightclub. We had two restaurants. We had jewelry shops. We had houses and islands. I was buying car parks. We had all the jewelry, all the toys. We had boats and cars. I used to walk around with a gun. I think in my early 30s, I turned into a bit of a monster. My ego was completely overinflated. I felt almost untouchable because I'd just been getting away with so much for so long. You know, I was working with a lot of big Colombians, Colombians at the time who had armies around them. And we were doing a lot of container shipping. We had a lot of companies. And I built up a huge amount of infrastructure around me. So I had a network that literally ranged through the entire South American kind of drug community all the way through Europe. And then one dark stormy night. (laughs) One dark stormy night. We're having a huge party in my club. We had 1,200 people in there. There was a DJ back in the day from Holland called Tiesto, who was absolutely amazing. So we had Tiesto playing in the club. Heineken sponsored it. Everywhere was painted green. The smoke was green. And there was a big ambush set up for me. I'd been under observation for three years. So I had the British Secret Service... And quite a few agencies from around Europe and South America were also coordinating together to try and catch me because I hadn't become a national threat, but when you start moving 10 million pounds worth of cocaine at a time, that's a lot of shit to move. So yeah, they they wanted to take me down and they wanted to take me down in Europe, which would have been easier for them to get me back to the UK where they could have controlled me because it was the English police that were spying on me in South America. But again, because of political reasons and so on and so forth, they had to do it illegally, which made the whole case against me illegal. So three years into observation, follow me around South America. As I said, we're having this huge party in my club. They wanted to come into the club and ambush it. But the club was full of so many high-profile people. They decided to set up an ambush and completely seal the entire area off. So the next morning, I'm due to fly to Aruba to meet another Colombian because I was doing a huge deal at the time. It was probably the last deal that I ever did, and it was huge. It was worth around $52 in cocaine, we had about 1.7 tons of cocaine on the floor in South America, which were intended to come to me in, in Buenos Aires. So the, the Secret Service knew this, and they wanted to wait. But it just so happened that on the floor, in one of my warehouses in Buenos Aires, I had 200 kilos sitting there, which they knew about. 
So the English Secret Service were telling the Argentine Secret Service, wait, don't arrest him. Give it another couple of weeks and you're going to get the cherry on the pie. But the Argentines got so excited they couldn't help themselves, they want to take me there. And then because they said, no, he's leaving in the morning, he's got a jet on the runway, so we're going to take him out tonight. So they sealed off the entire area in Palermo in um, Buenos Aires and they basically blockaded all the corners that I could have possibly gone to and the taxi drivers sitting outside the front of the club were police. So I was completely fucked. And the police were also in the club around me with guns. It just happened on this night I didn't have a gun on me, which was actually really lucky because I was flying away the next morning early. Otherwise I would have had a gun and it could have been a catastrophe. Wow. So I leave my club at four or five o'clock in the morning, it's like six of us in the taxi, and this taxi drives me into an ambush under a set of tunnels under the arches of a, a railway. And um, as we pulled into the tunnels, it was pitch black, the taxi driver stopped the car. And I thought to myself, fuck, what's going on here? You never stop in dark tunnels in, in Argentina or actually anywhere in, in South America because like kidnapping is huge over there. I was allegedly a British entrepreneur, businessman, so I was primed for being kidnapped. So my initial reaction was I thought he was getting kidnapped. As the taxi driver stopped in the tunnels, these four guys jumped out in black boiler suits and balaclavas and guns. So I thought to myself, I'm fucked. They opened the doors of the taxi and they literally grabbed everybody in the taxi. They threw them out of the taxi and against the wall in the tunnels. And then they're coming for me inside the taxi. So at this point, I thought I was fucked. I thought if these guys get me and they take me to the favela, which is the slums in Argentina, they're going to kidnap me, they're going to torture me, they're going to get every penny out of me, I'm just going to die a sorry, painful death. So I get out of the taxi and start fighting. You know, I give it my best, you know, I kick one in the nuts, I punch one in the face, whatever. But there's four or five guys there, they've got guns, and literally they, they beat me to an absolute pulp. Anyway, these guys, they pulled up their, their balaclavas and they pulled down the flaps and it was the DEA. And there was a moment of relief. I thought, thank fuck I'm not getting kidnapped. <laughs> and then very quickly it dawned on me from my, my blurry gaze, I'm fucked, <laughs> I'm getting arrested. Now I'm super high on coke. I've been sniffing grade A cocaine all night. Actually I've been sniffing it for about three years. So I'm super fucking high. I'm also wasted on vodka and champagne and I'm now starting to dehydrate. I've just had a complete beating. My wrists and numb now where I've been tied up, both my legs are tied up, and they literally grabbed me by the handcuffs and they dragged me down the road like a dog. Literally dragged me like a rat out of the tunnel. And when we get out of the tunnel, there's this huge entourage there. I mean, there must have been like 60 people there, like the paparazzi were there, the English embassy was there, the drug agencies from all around Europe and uh, South America were there, the drug squad were there. So immediately as I'm, as I'm looking at this entourage... <laughs> My, my dreams of getting caught in South America and bribing my way out of it by just paying everyone off <laughs> came crashing down. I, I realized I was completely fucked. So anyway, they pin me up against uh, one of the vans and then as I look around, there's another six of my mates there. So they basically captured everyone on this single night. They did like a joint operation, a sting operation. So they take the eight of us up into this shithole of a drug squad headquarters. I mean, you're talking Argentina, it's like a third world country. So imagine... The drug squad with no budget is a hellhole. 
So they take us up into this room, they sit us all on the floor like dogs, and they take us in one at a time for questioning. So I'm the first guy they take in. The other guys didn't fight. They're all sitting there, and they're Gianni Versace and Louis Vuitton suits. I'm black and blue, looking like a pig. When, and it seems like you're kind of you're teed up for similar to the accident many years before. It's like this high adrenaline, this lifestyle, this intensity, and now with like all the drugs and alcohol and all this kind of stuff, and then you get dropped in an Argentinian prison. So it's kind of the same sort of like crescendo to then quiet. Yeah, I mean, it was a serious downward spiral. So after we get interviewed in the drug squad, we get put in a, what's called the black hole. So that's three days of blackness. So no water, no food, no toilet, no talking, no light. And you're in a room that's such a fucking shithole under the drug squad headquarters that you can't see where the floor meets the wall for shit, piss and blood. It's disgusting. The walls were like this dark green paint that you could actually see the humidity. So if you like wiped your fingers along the wall, you know, there was this like misty feeling on the wall of dampness. It smelled like a tomb. And we got left in there for three days. So that was then the starting process of the breaking down of the self. The first thing you do is you go into the first point of isolation. It's three days in, in darkness. Have you read the book Shantaram? I have, yeah. Amazing. It's starting, starting to have some Shantaram vibes. <laughs> some Shantaram experiences. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's starting to have some Shantaram vibes. Yeah, I mean, he was in India. This was South America. Very similar. Kind of second, third world prisons. Zero human rights. You're cannon fodder. You're like a rat in a cage. They've got you now. It's not like in Europe, in the UK, or in the States where you've got human rights and they have to abide by laws. They can't beat prisoners up. You know, in South America, it's completely different. They just do what the fuck with you. If they want to rape you, they're going to rape you. And you were 33 years old? I was 33 years of age. Yeah. 33. In the hole? In the, in the black hole? The, the misty? In the ass end of the world, in Buenos Aires, facing a journey I had absolutely no idea what was going to happen, what it was going to be about. But a journey that I was going to go through, profound, but was hell in the beginning. I imagine that at this point, even though you're in the hole you're probably thinking, okay, I've got money, resources, like I'm going to get out of this somehow. I'm going to get lawyers. I'm gonna, or, or did you, or even at that point, did you know that you were fucked and you were looking at a long prison sentence? No, I mean, at the time I thought to myself, you know, you're sitting there the first day you sleep, the second day you're detoxing. And then obviously once you've been there long enough, the mind quietens down a little bit and then you're planning, you're scheming. You're getting strategic. You're working out, okay, Collateral losses first. What's up for grabs quick? What are they going to get? Because you've been in the business a long time. Your mates have been arrested. You know what happens. You know, the confiscation acts in drugs are huge. So you kind of, first thing you do is you work out collateral damage. This is what, I'm going to lose this. I'm going to lose that. But I've got these deals going on. So you're still hanging on. Big time. You're hanging on to what's going on out there in the street. You're going to buy your way out. This contact's going to help you out. You've got this money to this person. You're going to get a lawyer. They're going to find a judge. And you're going to work this through. You might have to spend a few months, maybe a year inside, but you know, you're going to get out. This is South America at the end of the day. Yeah, that's what that's what your mind's thinking. It's scheming, it's scamming. And at what point did you realize you were going to spend serious time in an Argentinian prison? Probably about three years into my sentence. Okay, so you're you're scheming for three years. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That tracks. I mean, I didn't go to court for three and a half years. Oh, okay. Is that typical, or was that so, strategic? Or so one, it's strategic on their behalf because they want to first. They want to break you financially and make sure you don't have any money left before they sentence you. 
And also just because of the laws in South America are so bad. I mean, normally a prisoner can't be detained for more than two years and a day without a sentence. That's a worldwide law. Everyone signed the pact that no prisoner can be detained for more than two years and a day without a sentence. We went three years, eight months without a sentence. They turned us into a circus. And were you with your colleagues and friends in, in, at this point? Or where were you? So post-black hole, you go before a judge. You spend six, seven hours in front of the judge. She reads out all the depositions against you. Basically, I realized that they were throwing the book against me. I got arrested for guns, organized crime, money laundering, drug trafficking, racketeering. I mean, you name it. I got absolutely a whole book thrown at me. So they were going to keep me there for a long time. There was no bail unless I bought it. I found myself a judge. The first judge made sure that we were going to be there for a very long time because the cases against us were just so bad that it would have been very hard to wiggle, especially as an Englishman in Argentina. And then you get taken to the prison, and that's when it starts. So a South American prison is very different to what we perceive as a prison. It's a completely different outfit. It's not like an American prison. It's not like a, a European prison. They're completely different. How so? They're, they're places that are, are kind of beyond your wildest dreams in every sense. Poverty, violence, prostitution, drug taking, drug making, manufacturing, corruption, darkness, deceit, betrayal. It goes on and on and on. It's way beyond your worst, wildest dreams. And, and was it like a massive prison with like tons of people with a lot of stuff going on? Yeah, so I was in uh, a place in Buenos Aires called Villa de Voto, which has now actually been closed due to the amount of mass murders that went on in there. So I was in there in a really bad period. And in this prison, there were 2,000 people. So you got 2,000 South Americans, and there were probably two British. I was one of them. <laughs> My partner was the other. And I assume you spoke Spanish at this point? I didn't point? speak any Spanish at this point. <laughs> you did all in, of this and you didn't speak no, Spanish? I've been living in Spanish-speaking countries for 15 years. That just shows the arrogance of, of my, my past self. So I know I arrived to an Argentine prison where they don't speak any English and I don't speak any Spanish. So I'm just relying on body language, which is pretty ugly at that point. <laughs> wow. And what they do is psychologically they try and really fuck you up. So when they take you from the courthouse to the prison, they take you at 3 o'clock in the morning, which is at the point when you're most vulnerable, you're most tired, but it's also at the time when the, the prison is its most volatile, most dangerous place. Well, that's when the murders are going on, that's when the fighting is going on, that's when the parties are happening, the drug taking, the territorial issues that are going on. They're, 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 South American prisons are like villages behind walls. They're not your conventional type of prison. So the prison that I was in, they didn't have any cells. You might have had 200 people on one wing, like sleeping on the floor like sardines, or you'd be sleeping outside on the patio, or you make villages inside the prison. Do you like make your own food? Do you, are people like trading things? Is, are it's there like pure economies? Trade. So prison is, in South America is pure trade. Yeah, you've got gangs, which are called ranchos, which are like little armies. But it's all trade. You know, you want food, you've got to trade. You might be selling someone's drugs or you might be smuggling their drugs for them. You might be working with the guards to bring the drugs in. It's complete corruption. It's pure trade. That's how you survive in a South American prison, by trade. Did you have any desire to replicate what you've done in the outside in terms of building an infrastructure and creating power and like, did you try to do that while you were there? No, I mean, when I got into the uh, prison, now you've got to remember I've been in the drug game for 15 years, so I thought I was relatively prepared for a violent life and I'd been in prison as well. When I was in my early 20s, I'd been in prison in London, so I thought I knew prison life. Nothing could quite prepare me for the shock I received when I walked into the South American prison. It was 
the scariest thing I'd ever experienced in my entire life, walking through the grounds at three o'clock in the morning of a South American prison. It's horrifying. It will scare the shit out of you. You'll be trembling in your boots, listening to the noises of people fighting with machetes, guttural sounds of people dying, the sounds of cumbia coming from every single wing, the parties that were going on, the screams, the gunshots maybe with the guards fighting in another part of the prison with the convicts. It's pure hell. The first thing I had to do was actually get into the prison and settle and get safe and understand how the prison worked. And even to survive and not die. And the way I did that was I was actually quite a well-known smuggler in South America. I knew a lot of Colombians. And when we got arrested, they highly publicized our case. So everyone knew about it. It was in the newspapers, it was on the radio, that they bought this, caught this international gang that had exploited Argentina, completely used and abused the place and the space and the politicians to get what they wanted. So they painted a really bad picture, but obviously that picture that was painted about me on the outside and the inside was actually a good one. And there were a huge bunch of Colombians serving quite a long sentence that knew of me. So when I walked into the prison at three in the morning and the guards took me to my my area of the prison, there was a bunch of Colombians waiting for me to pick me up and take me to safety, which saved my life. So my worst nightmares saved my life. So as I'm walking through the prison, you know, I'm absolutely mortified of what I'm seeing. There's people that are dying of malnutrition. They've got no teeth. They're not wearing clothes or they've got like a shaggy pair of shorts on. And they're standing over machetes, like three foot long machetes. They've got knives. They've got some of the worst tools I'd ever seen in my life, like baseball bats with nails driven through the ends. Yeah, it's absolutely petrifying. As we get to the back end of the prison where I'm about to stay, there's this huge floor-to-ceiling metal bars, and behind it was a bunch of Colombians standing there. I didn't actually know who they were, but they were standing there waiting for me. So the guard's undone the chain, and he's booted me in. I'm thinking that these guys are just going to kill me. So as I, again, as I stick my hands up to fight, all of a sudden these, guards, these guys are showing me the, the soles of their, the palms of their hands, say, so, hey, chill, we're here to help you, and we're the only people that can help you, or you're going to die out there. And they took me in. And they, they helped me. They gave me a, a piece of foam on the floor and a cardboard box to sleep on. They fed me. They gave me some clothes. They gave me some currency. You know, and we hung out. So that was my integration into prison, into the first period. So I'm in there for eight to ten months. And then around the prison, the vibe got around that there was these big English narcos in there that had a lot of money. So obviously... All the murderers and the armed robbers are like, okay, we're going to kidnap these guys and we're going to get money out of them. So the rumor spread around the prison because you always move around the prison in your gang. If they could get to us, they were going to kidnap us. And that happens quite a lot in prison. I mean, basically they kidnap you, they start cutting off your fingers, they phone you home and they're asking to get money dropped off outside. It's just a going, ongoing concern. Even the guards of the, the prisons actually organize the kidnappings. That's how dark it is. So 10 months in, the judge moves me into isolation. So within this prison, there's an isolation cell or an isolation wing. It was basically two rooms, two concrete rooms with no windows. Uh, and then I had a, a very small little patio with a cage around it. <laughs> so I, I lived in there for six months in isolation. Was isolation then preferable for you than being in the general population? Or was it psychologically traumatizing and you'd rather be in this violent hellhole instead? Yeah, so obviously coming out of this violent hellhole into an isolation cell with my own little patio in the beginning was amazing. So imagine my first night in there, I actually, I'm on my own. I haven't been on my own for a long time. 
which was beautiful. You know, even though I only had a cardboard box to sleep on and a bucket to sit on, this was heaven. You know, all of a sudden, I'm out of danger. I can actually close my eyes and sleep. No one can get to me. So for the first two or three days, you know, I'm tinkering around. I'm thinking, wow, this is fantastic. But then three or four days in, you get nothing more than a cardboard box to sit on or a bucket and a little bit of dirt with a cage around it to walk around in. You know, you start climbing the walls. Yeah, tell me about how that felt. What do you do with your mind when there's absolutely nothing to do? You didn't have any kind of like meditation practice or movement practice, I assume. No, there wasn't... So by this point, by this point, I'm still scamming and scheming. At this point in my life, in prison, I'm still trying to smuggle. I'm still trying to put deals together. I'm still trying to get messages out to people on the street to finish some of the unfinished deals that I've got. And I'm still smuggling from inside prison. Even though it didn't happen, I was still actually in that mindset that I could still do it and become powerful and then maybe you know, rain a bit in the prison and get my power back. But I think it was probably, you know, the first couple of weeks into my first stint of isolation that things then start shifting. I had no tools at all. Nothing. Absolutely. I didn't have one tool on how to work on myself. I didn't even know working yourself existed. I'm a guy, my mind was on Mars. So I have no idea about the mind. I have no idea about embodiment. I have no idea about inner work at all. I, didn't, I had no idea even what it was. And a book on yoga made its way into my hands. Miraculously, I ended up with a book on yoga, which I read in isolation the first time I was in there. And this, I think this book was by uh, Ramana Maharashi, which kind of became one of my teachers in prison, but through his, through his books and his works. And in this book, he started talking about the mind and what it was and the ego and how to observe the mind. And so I read this book and I was completely fascinated. And a part of the book, there were some asanas, you know, like the yoga postures and stuff. So all of a sudden, I became fascinated of watching or observing or even looking at the mind. I didn't even know I had one. And there was lots of conversations with Ramana Maharashi about the ego, about reaction, about triggers. So this is with my first kind of look at even that there was a mind up there and instructions on how to do it. So I then started to look and observe my mind for the first time ever. And that was when I realized there was a whole fucking zoo going on up there. There was like total madness going up in my head that I didn't even realize. So this was my first look at any form of practice. Any kind of spiritual work started in my first six months isolation period. So I sat, I started to sit daily. I didn't know what a practice was. I hadn't done enough work to even think about what was a daily practice or daily work. I was just working through his book at random times of the day. I'd be reading his book, then I'd be observing the mind, and then I'd be lying down on the floor, just trying to watch what was going on. I'd start doing some training. You know, some of my old ski training came back to me. I started to train again. I started getting fit and strong in isolation. I started to have a general kind of feeling of well-being about me. I was still scamming. I was still trying to scheme. I was still trying to find a lawyer that could find me a judge that would get me out of prison. Yeah, and you hadn't had your trial yet. Your trial. No, was... I'm just into my first year. We're like, I'm 12, 14 months into my sentence. The only thing we've been was remanded in custody. And at the very beginning of the conversation, you talked about one of the challenges with the daily practice is that in the beginning it's quite novel, and then soon it starts to have its own boredom. I can imagine that when you're in this state of heightened stimulation and then that heightened stimulation is completely gone when you're in isolation, 
you discover these practices, which in a sense, probably when you first discovered them, stimulating, novel, interesting. Did you have that experience where the practice itself started to become dull? Because I, I went through to the do. whole process of of doing a practice that I didn't know what was to becoming bored of it. Yeah, and I'd stop doing it. Then I'd get attacked by my mind. The monkey mind would start flaring up. It was almost like a mental pain that I was in. Mm. And then I go back to doing the practice again. But I didn't actually understand the depth and the power of the practice. So I would stop. I would start. I would stop. I would start. And this went on for six months, maybe a couple of weeks in, and I'd leave it for a week, and I'd miss the practice, I'd go back to doing it again. You know, I did a lot of laying around, did a lot of walking around in circles, did a lot of training, physical training. Basically, I was doing whatever I could to numb myself out. I was just trying to be numb. I had no access to people anymore, which at one point became quite hard, because I missed the madness. I missed all the craziness and stuff, but I was safe. I could hear it, it was all happening behind me. I missed all the guys that were on the wing, I was taking a lot of drugs in prison. When I first got there, I was smoking a lot of weed. I was smoking cocaine. So I missed all that. I missed the madness a little bit because the silence and the stillness was too hard for me to handle at times. You know, some nights you'd be climbing the fucking walls. You'd be so bored that you'd literally be climbing the walls. So you know, this first period went on for six months. And then I managed to find myself a judge who had a kind of an in, a contact to the governor of the prison. So we gave him 25K and then he put me in a VIP part of the prison. So this was a wing which had 20 people on it amongst 2,000. Now this was quite a, I'd say a nice wing, but it was still in this same prison. So nice is a big word, but I'm going to call it nice because in comparison to the rest of the prison, it was like a five-star hotel. So now we've got 20 of us in there. You've got like a, a commissioner of police, you've got a judge, you've got some murderers, some cop killers, you've got some big, big armed robbers and a bunch of smugglers. So it's like a higher class of convict that doesn't want to kill each other but they want to live and hold their own space and get on doing their own shit but equally the drug taking continues the prostitution goes on the making and selling and smuggling of drugs within and out the prison goes on but it's just you're not around the guys that came from the uh from the slums who are literally going to kill you for a, a plate of food or your, or your shoes you know they've got money so it's very different they might have turf fights to, to fight over territory but you're in a safer place but it's pure gangsterism now. You've gone from the madness and now you're around 20 crooks, which are very well organized, and it's just pure gangsterism. All they're talking about is their next job, whatever that might be. So I spent probably about four or five months in this wing, and upstairs there were, because Via Devoto, the prison, was an old military hospital. So they had all these like weird, dark places in the prison and lookout posts and towers and isolation rooms and punishment rooms, and they had like underground cellars where they used to put people. So above the VIP wing that I was, there was three isolation cells, which were probably about the size of your toilet. So I kind of hustled my way in, paid a guy like six grand to get him out, and I moved into his isolation cell. And I stayed there for four years. Four years in a, the space of a toilet? Four years in the space of a toilet. Yeah, I was in there 20 hours a day. It was probably around eight foot by eight foot, like an eight foot by 10 foot cell with a tiny little bathroom and I, I built in the hallway like a little kitchenette. But essentially, I was in this room for 20 hours a day with a little window. For four years? For four years, yeah. And so, did it break you? It broke me completely. So it broke me emotionally, mentally, and physically. Yeah, I had absolute breakdowns. So it was at this point that I had got 
hold of a bunch of yoga books and I started to study yoga in depth. I realized that I was approaching 18 months, two years in prison. I was slowly going broke. I was very quickly had all my assets confiscated. Very little help was coming in from my friends. Most of my mates were fucking me over. My girlfriend was getting fucked by another guy in my house, which I was paying for. People were using my money. I was being betrayed to, lied to. Judges and prosecutors were robbing me. My lawyer was robbing me. And things were slowly starting to fall to pieces. Yeah. So as I got deeper into yoga, it was like a safe haven for me, a space where I could go and study and learn. And I knew that this was going to bring about change and shift because very quickly I was starting to realize that I didn't want to go back to where i just come from. This whole 15, 16 year episode of smuggling was done. Two years into prison, I knew it was completely over and I actually wanted to change and I had to rehabilitate myself because it wasn't going to happen downstairs. So that's when I was in voluntary isolation then for like almost like a solid stint of four years. And that's why I really embodied yoga and all its learnings the philosophy, the practice. That's why I built my daily practice. So it was through yoga. So you read a lot of books. You explored a lot of different styles of practice. I imagine that there's not a single one of our listeners who has had the experience that you've had, but I think many of our listeners have had the experience of feeling like their lives are in some ways a prison and that certain spiritual practices are refuge. And so with that in mind, what are some of the texts or practices that you found most alleviating to that sense of imprisonment? What texts might you recommend people to read that would that really feel like a refuge? So I was studying the yogi lineage, yeah, that's where I was. It wasn't Buddhism, it wasn't the Kabbal, I got into yoga. So I can only really talk about yoga because that's what I studied. That's what gave me my practice. If I was to say two great books, the Bhagavad Gita is one, mm. an amazing book, and probably the Sutras of Patanjali, which are basically, they're all ancient texts about the mind and how to transcend the mind and reach states of enlightenment. But it's a process. More than actually reading the books, it's the practice. The books might give you some tools, some ideas and some direction of what way you need to go. But you have to do the practice. You've got to do the work. There's no shortcuts. Tell me a bit about the practice. Are we talking meditation, asanas? Are we talking the way you approach life and certain agreements that you make? When you say the practice, what does yeah, that Yeah, so mean? my practice in the beginning was a meditative and movement one. So I was exploring what was meditation. Yes, yeah, so I don't, personally, I don't like subjective meditations where they take you on a journey. Like a story. You know, you get into a boat, you see the sunset, you're drifting off out in the boat, you're leaving your stuff. I don't really do that kind of meditation. I'm a very systematic, methodical kind of guy. So more like the old ancient texts of yoga will explain that. It's more objective. It's very methodical. It's very systematic. It's about trying to channel the behavior of the mind, to quieten down the mind so that the stuff that needs to come through will come through. But it takes a lot of time and the mind is a tricky tool. The mind is like mercury. You try to catch it and it's gone. It's too slippery. You can't catch the mind. It's so quick. And all its facets, there's so many facets of the mind. It takes a long time to work through the fragmentation of thought and mind. And it took me years of isolation to do that. So I was in a very blessed space, forced blessed space that I could actually do that. So my practice became four sittings a day of meditation, 
probably around four hours of physical practice a day. And then in the rest of the time, I'd be in observation. So not trying to identify with thought, but rather observe thought. So that was mainly my practice at the time. It was just trying to observe my mind and observe thought patterns. And then I would have some tools to then try and break down those thought patterns. And I went through every single dialogue of my life. Every single action came through. So I worked through all my old blueprints, all the shit I'd done wrong, all the wrong things that I had said, all my actions, like my emotional, physical, mental actions towards other people. You know, I worked through the whole lot. It took a long time. And obviously I went through those periods of trying to understand the practice that I knew that I had to get on my mat every single day and do my practice. And that was then when I made a pact with myself that I would do it every single day regardless. It didn't matter how depressed I felt, it didn't matter what was going on, that I would stand up in the morning and I would not move until I sat on my mat. If I didn't think that I could get on my mat and do my practice, I wouldn't move. I'd just stand there and have a fight with myself. So I was having this internal fight myself, which kind of relates to the Bhagavad Gita. You've got Arjuna and Krishna showing two sides of the mind. And it's the internal fight that we all have. Yeah, most people are in prison, they don't even know it. They're imprisoned by their thoughts. Yeah, I was just in the, the other type of prison. Not only was I imprisoned by my thoughts, I was in the physical prison. But the majority of people are actually in prison anyway. They just don't know it. They're imprisoned by the constructs of their mind and their blueprint, the way they're hardwired. They're completely attached to it. So I started to break this down very, very slowly. And it was a long, slow process. It didn't happen overnight. There wasn't any magical moments of, oh, that's it, I'm there. No, it happened over years, over thousands and thousands of hours of, of meditation, of observing, of daily practice, of going through months of standing in the center of my room. Maybe some days I'd stand there for two hours, having to fight myself to do this practice, but I did it. And that was the way I gained mastery over my mind. And then that was when the bliss started to come. And that was also then when the breakdown started to happen. So before I could actually even get into a place where the healing could be done, I had to get myself into a place where I even loved myself. So, okay, so this is interesting to me. You say the bliss and the breakdowns happen concurrently, yeah. which I think may be helpful for people who are on sort of spiritual exploration generally, because we know that spiritual development is not linear, but we kind of want it to be. And we think, okay, if bliss is coming, that means that pain and suffering are being shed I must have less pain since I'm having more bliss. But I think it's more likely that it's just a sensitization generally, that there's actually yeah. more bliss, but maybe more suffering too. Exactly, there's layers. Let's call it layers. Maybe like the layers of an onion. You know, as you peel back the layers of the onion, you get down to the source, but you've got to keep peeling back these layers. You peel and, back and you a cry layer. a lot <laughs> when you peel so the an onion. First thing is you've got to do is you've got to learn to love yourself. That's yeah. first and foremost. If you don't love yourself and you can't forgive yourself, there's absolutely no way you can start doing any healing work. It's impossible. Because you're going to be in a very like emotionally reactive mind. Mm. And if that's the case, then there's zero accountability for what you've done to yourself and other people. And the mind will just justify everything. When I was a smuggler, I justified that I was just giving everybody a good night out. Regardless of the impact that I was creating. You know, it took a couple of years to actually even love myself. And to understand myself and to believe that actually I was just okay as I was. Pot broke, no money, no friends, in the ass end of the world with nothing. Part of why I asked the question earlier about the violent aspect of smuggling is I'm curious about the accountability piece for you as you were going through the spiritual process. Because there must have been a reckoning where you looked at your life and you looked at your actions and you had to, in some way, kind of square that away for yourself to be able to progress. Was there a period like that where you were really remorseful about the actions that you'd taken? Yeah, of and course. I mean, and it was progressive. 
It wasn't one thing. It would happen progressively. So you might peel back a layer and go into a certain area of your life where your actions towards a certain person or a group of people weren't right or unjust or even what you were doing as a living, you were smuggling cocaine. So these layers would come. The deeper you got, the more forgiveness that you'd done, the deeper you could go. And then on, on that journey would become the breakdown. You know, the first emotional breakdown I had, I think, was probably like three years into prison. Still hadn't been to court. And I remember I was standing in the shower one day and um, I hadn't been in a good place for quite a while. I was really down. I was depressed. As I said, I hadn't been to court, didn't know when my trial date was. So I didn't even have any idea when I was getting out. Now, most people in South America get, get caught and get held indefinitely in prison without a trial. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's disgusting. So you could be five years without a trial in South America for robbing a, a mobile phone. Yeah, so I'm three years in, I haven't even been to court yet. So I had my first breakdown. It was an emotional breakdown. I remember as I was standing in the shower and the strength just drained from my body and I collapsed on the floor. So I'm just on this concrete floor, collapsed in the fetal position, crying like a big baby. Now there is no room for humanity in prison. Thank God none of the other prisoners saw that because they would have fucked me. Like they would have completely raped me and beat me up. So I'm in my isolation cell on the floor like a baby crying for days. Like for days crying. I can't get up. I don't have the energy to even turn the water off. I'm broken completely. And I cried myself so much that in the end, I think two and a half days in, I started laughing. I broke down so many patterns. I went back to my childhood, all my childhood traumas. You know, I got back in there. I got back into my blueprint so deep that so much stuff came out and then followed bliss. You, you use the expression blueprint. What do you mean by that? So my blueprint, like my hard wiring, what happened as a baby, what happened in my childhood, what happened with my parents growing up, set my blueprint. And that's like the foundation of the prison of your mind, right? Exactly. These, these yeah. are the set of conditions. These are the constructs of yeah. my mind. Yeah, these set the blueprint. So the first blueprint that got set with me was my mum. Bless her, she was only 15 years of age when she had me, and her parents kicked her out. So she's a 15-year-old mum, single mum with me in London. We've got nowhere to live, and she hasn't got a job. So she has no choice but to put me into an orphanage. So my biological mother gave me away as a baby for adoption. That immediately set a blueprint. So when I had my first emotional breakdown, what I saw was the baby being left and the mum walking away and never coming back. So that immediately set abandonment and rejection, that you were just never good enough, ever. Because your mum left you, she never came back for you. That set the tone for the rest of my life. So this was in the first emotional breakdown. This is what came through. And then at that point, I realized it wasn't about me. It was about her. And actually, I was just okay as I was. So following the first breakdown, then came bliss. And then the meditations deepened, the love for myself deepened, the forgiveness for everyone outside deepened. You know, my girlfriend had a baby living in my house with another guy that I was paying for. I forgave them. My mates, they fucked me over. They took my money. I forgave them. One guy was a snitch. He put me in prison. I forgave him. But sincerely and authentically, it wasn't just like, oh yeah, I forgive that guy. I forgive her. No, I authentically did it. Sincerely went in there and cried about it. And I felt the emotion to actually forgive and release. So this experience of kind of breakdown to breakthrough, two questions. Do you think that that was the result of the prison or the spiritual work or both? And if it was the result of the prison, 
Do you think that if that had happened without your spiritual work, do you think you would have broken through or do you think you just would have been done? It needed both. Yeah. I needed to be in prison. I needed to be in isolation doing the spiritual work. Otherwise, it would not have got in there. It was impossible. It, nothing could have got in there. For me, that was the journey, the process that I had to go on. You know, maybe for you, it might be different. You might not need to go to prison. You might be able to do a 10 day Vipassana. That might be enough to reach the same states that I went to. But that was what I needed. That was my process. I had to go to a very dark space. It was the only way that I could go forwards. And, and from that point onwards, the practice then became the foundation of my day. All of a sudden, I didn't have to have the internal fight to practice. I just did it. It was almost a blessing to get on my mat four times a day and meditate. It was a blessing, a gift to be able to train five hours a day and then to sit there in observation, just observing the mind without feeding thought. The books became easy to read. I started fasting. I started doing like long water fasts. started cleansing myself out. I didn't have any more sex. I went celibate for five years because the relationship towards myself was so unhealthy that how could I have any form of healthy relationship with a woman? Now, if this were like a major motion picture, at this point in the story, you would have started teaching all the other prisoners and you would have been healing everyone and you would have become some kind of guru. The prison would have like settled down and become like an exemplary <laughs> place. And then there would be some sort of like glorious you walking out with devotees like throwing exactly. flowers at you. I'm guessing that's not how it Sadly, went Sadly, that no? does not happen in prison. It just does not happen. So if anything, they see that as a weakness. Mm. If you're not running around with a knife, fighting people, renting out your wife for prostitution, or whatever the fuck's going on in there, then you're just not right. So I was looked upon as a weirdo. Nobody touched me. Nobody came near me. Because when I got into the VIP part of the prison, I had a couple of really bad fights that I won. I did that on purpose. But no one then came near me. They thought I was nuts. But actually, the people that were going nuts were them. I was the one that was actually healing myself. And I was moving on. So I was left alone. No one came near me. You were in isolation for four years. The trial didn't even happen until three years, eight months in. That's it. And then I assume you got a sentence that then lasted a certain amount of time. So how long were you in prison total? So three years, eight months, we got taken to trial, which was long. It was 10 weeks which was a really hellish, hellish time because um, you know to go to trial in South America, I mean, you've got to be taken under armed guard every single day to the courthouse. You've got to get taken through the prison system. You've got to get taken out. You've got to go under armed guard. You've got to get put into isolation cells. You've got to get stripped four times a day. You've got to be handcuffed, shackled. It's a really traumatic experience. Ten weeks of that every day being stripped, shackled, pushed around, put into holding cells. It's really, really hard. So I actually trained for my trial physically. Because they, they try and break you. It's a known fact inside the prison. They, they're going to try and break you in the trial. So I actually trained for it physically. I think it was three years, ten months I got sentenced and I got ten years. Which I kind of knew that was the area that I was headed to. They were going to give me 12. But because I was honest and accountable and pleaded guilty to all the uh, charges against me, they gave me ten years. Which, to be honest with you, ten years said quickly is not that long. It is a long time. But if I was in the UK, I would have got 40 years. If I was in the States, they would have given me 10 life sentences. So I actually was very lucky that at the period of my time in my life, geographically where I was, at the right time, right place, I was actually in a country that had the least sentencing for smuggling in the world. So I did really well. I'm super grateful that I was in Argentina. I was super grateful to the prison. 
and its poverty and harshness because it was a very hard lesson. But it was short. And and that was around four years time served, right? Yeah. So you were looking at another six and some change. Exactly. So at least I had a number. Yeah, which was a good thing. So at four years I went back to my isolation so I just carried on my practice. But by this time, I'd had some big, big shifts spiritually. I'd done an awful lot of work. I completely understood myself, where I'd been. So now the work had shifted. It was more growth work now as opposed to healing. It had gone past the, the kind of work point where you're trying to understand your blueprint and why what's happening is happening. There was no more confusion. My mind was clear. It was concise. There was no more turbulence up there. So this was then when I was able to actually start hitting states of bliss. So four and a half years in, I started having magical moments. So I'd be lying down on, on the floor in my cell and it was almost as if someone had dropped 10 ecstasy pills in the base of my spine and given me a magic mushroom. You know, I was starting to trip out. I was in ecstasy. So I realized I started to hit pure states of freedom and that came about through desirelessness. So I, I got into desireless states. You know, I hadn't had sex for four years. I had no money left. I had no property left, I didn't have cars, clothes, jewellery, all the trimmings and stuff that go with the whole bullshit I identified with before. It was just me and myself and that was it. So completely desireless, with very little thought going on, hitting really deep states of meditation, I could actually get into ecstatic moments of almost like orgasmic feelings and embodiment, which came about from the practice and the physical training that I was doing. So based on what I understand about your story this far, it seems like there might be a risk that there might be some attachment to these bliss states themselves. You said the states were coming about because of a lack of desire. And of course, you were in this extremely barren space, a prison. Did you find yourself getting addicted to the bliss at all, like developing an attachment to those heightened states? No, it didn't happen. When they came, they were gifts. I'd done enough work on non-attachment to realize that it wasn't something I could tap into on a daily basis. They just came in moments. And when they came, I just enjoyed them for what they were. You know, I'd worked through my addictions and my toxicity. So, and it was such a profound feeling and such a respected space that you went into. It, it wasn't like the mind was like, wow, I want to go back in there and do that again. I was stone cold sober. I hadn't taken any drugs, alcohol, or had any you know, madness going in my life for like over four years now. So the states that you get lifting, it's just it's pure peace. And when that comes about, then you go into these blissful states. But it's very hard to get into. I mean, now I can't go there. Yeah, I was curious about that. Do you miss prison because you had those states? <laughs> Do I miss prison? No, I'm completely out of prison now. Even out here in the metaphorical sense, I'm not in prison anymore. Do I miss those states of desirelessness? Sometimes I do reflect on them because there are magical states which is very hard to get into now. Even though I get into some really good states of mind, I can't go that deep now because you know I'm surrounded by distraction. And now you're deeply involved in your personal mission as a teacher and as someone who is supporting others in their practice. When, during your experience of self-inquiry, did the fire light for your personal ikigai or purpose or meaning? So we got to six years in prison and I had developed an issue with the Secret Service in Argentina. 
And actually, it was because of those guys that I got sent home. So they were trying to blackmail me for a million bucks. Or they were basically going to send me to a prison where I was going to die. So I got a, uh, I phoned my embassy. This was it. I was like, I was over violence. I was over being a cocky little shit. I didn't want to fight anymore. I didn't want to scheme anymore. You know, I was on my spiritual path. So I phoned the embassy and I explained to them the situation. The ambassador came to the courthouse and we had a meeting with a judge, a private meeting. And I explained to them what was happening. The judge knew exactly who they were. And he basically said to me that we can't really do anything about it. He said, the only thing we can do is expel you from the country. But he said, that's going to take some time because you've got to do your paperwork. The fact is I had served more than half my sentence. I was six years in. So they did have an expulsion law in place for adverse conditions. So the embassy and the judge, they did my paperwork to expel me. And they basically took me from the prison to a jumbo jet plane. <laughs> Without not one hour on the street. They took me from isolation to a jumbo jet plane, a BA plane that was going to London. So they did my paperwork. They came around and got me one morning. They said, you've got five minutes. Get your shit. You're going home. <laughs> I was just like... And you thought you had four more years at that point. Yeah, I thought at least I had another two. So they gave me five minutes to get my shit together. I mean, I didn't have much shit to get together. I had like one pair of jeans. I had one t-shirt. I didn't care about my books. I had a pair of flip-flops and that was it. So I left. $100. I put $100 in my uh, jeans somewhere. That was the last money that I had. I was down to $100. So anyway, they took me to the airport. They put me on the back of the plane. So I've gone from this asylum bin of 2,000 monsters killing each other to a jumbo jet plane, a BA plane with like 500 people on it flying to London from holidays. <laughs> so that in itself was quite a trip. So as I'm sitting on the plane, the captain came up and said to me, I've got a passport for you, which I'm going to give to you in the UK, and apparently you're free to go when you get there. He said, by the way, is it political? <laughs> I was like, totally political. He said, do you know what? We get it all the time in South America. We get it so much. So anyway, he said, I've got your passport. Don't worry, when you get home... I'll give you your passport and you're free to go. It's like amazing. So I'm now sitting on the back of this jumbo jet plane, a bit tripped out. You know, you can imagine I'm in this, this madhouse. And now I'm sitting around 500 normal people that I haven't seen for six years. And the first thing I noticed was the amount of agitation and distraction with everybody. Mm. So I'm the one that's been in prison, but I'm sitting there as cool as a cucumber. I'm super peaceful. I'm just sitting there. Everyone's playing with the in-house entertainment. They're opening books, closing books, opening their computers or on their phones. Obviously, like by now, there's all these new phones. They've got all these new like digital phones and people playing on Facebook. What year was this? This was 210. Mm. This modern technology. But I just couldn't help to notice the distraction of people. And I was like, wow, these people are all in prison. I was like, my God, this is insane. I mean, look at them. Like, they're completely agitated. Not one person was just sitting still. They were all doing something. Eating or... I have They were just doing stuff. So I sat there on the plane for 12 hours. I didn't sleep. Obviously, I, was, I wasn't excited. I wasn't sad. I was, just, I was a bit numb. I was a bit flatlined. But I just observed everybody for 12 hours. And I was trying to understand what was going on with my psyche. Like, why wasn't I feeling free? Basically, I was just being let out of prison. Mm. So I, I landed in Heathrow Terminal 5 and I got off the plane. The captain came down, gave me my passport. I had no idea what to expect. I didn't know if I was going to get arrested or questioned. So I walked through the airport and nothing happened. So I just go and sit down 
a coffee bar and have a coffee. I buy myself my first coffee in six years and I'm just sitting there. I'm just trying to work shit out. I'm now free, but I'm not free. I, I, I can't work it out. Like I'm free to go. I can do what I want. But I'm feeling like I should go back to my prison cell, into isolation. I'm a bit confused. So I just sat there and just tried to gather myself. So the first thing that came about was that I realized that I became free in prison. Yeah, because I wasn't happy than what I was. I was the same. There was no, I'm out of prison, let's go and party, let's go and call all my mates and get high. There was nothing. It was just another day. The only thing that had changed was the perspective. Yeah, the vision changed, but that was it. But nothing shifted. There was no emotional shift. So very quickly I realized that by you know year four, year four and a half, I was completely free. Even though I was in the, the physical confines of a prison, I wasn't actually in prison anymore. I was totally free. And as I, I sat there at the airport, I then asked myself, so what the fuck are you going to do now? You know, I went into prison with an asset holding company. I had millions in cash. I had everything I ever needed. I'd never needed to work ever again in my entire life. Now I've got $100 in my pocket. And as I was sitting there, I just started downloading this, these messages and stuff. And it was that meditative and movement practices had had such profound effects on my life that it made me free. And if I could facilitate those practices into people's life, then everything I'd just done would be worthwhile. Mm. And that was it. It was clear. I was going to go and coach movement. I could imagine how someone would come out of that experience and say, I'm going to teach yoga or I'm going to teach meditation. But that's not what you do. You do something different. You do something that I've, I'd never done before I did it here in Ibiza, which is this primal movement. Which It's funny, actually, because I knew that you had been in prison and I thought that you developed it because it was a workout you could do in prison. That's what I thought when I heard, oh, this guy's been in prison and this is his movement thing. I was like, oh, it's just something that you can do in prison because it's, it's so much about your own body. I'm curious, how did you get to primal movement from your sort of spiritual inquiry? So you have to remember that I started training at the age of 14 at team level. Yeah, so I was trained as a pro skier, so I knew a lot about movement. Post-skiing, I also trained. I was a weightlifter, I did boxing, I trained in you know, other different forms of movement. When I got into prison, I kind of recaptured those trainings with yoga. So in prison, I was doing a fusion of, of many different methods of, of movement and training. And also through boredom, I started to explore movement, different ways of moving the body. You know, I mean, you're, you know, you're in isolation 20 hours a day, you, you're going to explore stuff, not only mentally, but physically. So I had started working like a quadruped anyway, which is basically on all fours. But I hadn't actually worked out the primal system and method that we now practice. But primal is not about primal movement in the sense of the animals. It's about my primal state that I was living in prison. That's where the primal comes from. Yeah? The movement system then came from years post-prison of exploration in movement and training in other systems of movement. So obviously I carried on studying yoga, I went to India, I went to Thailand, I went and studied in all the ashrams, I did thousands of hours in trainings and teacher trainings, I studied Pilates, kinesiology, I studied gymnastics, I also started to train with a Mongolian circ trainer. So I was training in all these different forms and different modalities of movement. You, you came out of prison and then started these trainings or how did no, you support so yourself? I, I came out of prison and the first thing I did was I went home to my mum and dad's house, which was my childhood house. 
So I stayed and hung out with him for three months, which is a really beautiful experience of healing and reconnecting back to my parents because obviously I hadn't seen them for 10 years. I hadn't seen them since 2000. So we had to reconnect on a big scale. They taught me, or my dad especially, an amazing man, he taught me so much about unconditional love and non-judgment. He never once asked me a question, never said anything to me, never judged me, and he was a policeman. Wow. We wait till this part of the podcast for you to say that your dad was a, was a policeman, policeman this so imagine. And he's, he didn't judge you? He's got a smuggler son, yeah, that's been in prison twice. He was a private murder detective, yeah. In 20 years of smuggling, he never said a word to me. The only thing he was ever there for was to pick me up and support me. He wow. never said a word. What's his name? His name is Martin. Very beautiful man, one of my biggest teachers. Wow. So he taught me so much in prison. Every week I would call him, he just gave me support. And that was it. He was like a really like solid rock foundation for me to rest on. So when I got home, we kind of reconnected. And he picked me up from the train station. He didn't say anything. He didn't judge me. He just supported me. He gave me a bed to sleep in. He gave me 10 bucks to go out and have a beer with my mates. And he did the same thing to me then as he did to me as a kid. He dropped me at the train station and he picked me up. Wow. And then that was kind of your home base where you started doing So I spent trainings. three months doing that, reintegrating back into society and finding my way, which was quite a lonely period as well. You know, I'd spend days in my bedroom. For the first three months, I'd go up to my bedroom for like two or three days. And my dad would come up and knock on the door and be like, hey, Nick, are you okay? Like, do you want to come out? Do you want to go for a walk? Do you want to do something? Do you want to go for a beer? Now, you've got to remember, he's been a, a murder detective for 30 years, so he's been putting people in prison all his life. So he's very familiar with convicts, prison, ex-convicts. So he knew how to hold space for me. Mm. You know, he never pushed me. Mm. He left me to my own space. He let me be. He very gently encouraged me to maybe try to do things. So he was a great part of the getting out of prison. My mum was obviously my mum. She was just there to love me and support me. Never said a word anyway. You know, I was like her angel. Didn't matter what I did anyway. So that was totally cool. And then three months in, I got an invite to go to Notting Hill Gate and uh, hang out with some friends. And when I was in Notting Hill Gate, I, I hung out one night just to Portobello at a friend's house. And they said to me, look, Nick, you know, really, you want to come up and live here in West London? Notting Hill Gate's a super cool area. You're going to love it. You'll get back on your feet doing something. And I thought to myself, well, there's only one thing I want to do, and that's to integrate movement into people's lives. I didn't know how. I didn't know where that would happen, but I just knew it would happen. So I went back home to my mum and dad's, and then the week later, my friend called me, and she said, look, the flat above me has come up for rent. Do you want it? And I was like, I can't afford a, an apartment in Notting Hill Gate. I'm broke. I don't have any money. I don't have a job. So she said, look, we're your mates from school. We're going to club together. We're going to loan you the money. We're going to give you the money to go and get your flat. We're going to pay a deposit in your first month's rent. You can pay it back when you got it. But we really want to help you out. So my mates lovingly gave me this apartment. They squared it up with the landlord and said it was okay. But anyway, I'm pot broke. I, I can't even go and afford to buy myself a bag of fruit and veg. I borrowed a couple of hundred quid here and there, and I was going to this little deli in Portobello Road where I met this Italian guy. And he was quite a character, and he got to know me. And then one day he said to me, hey, what do you do for a living? So I'm sitting there, and I was like, hey, I'm a, I'm a yoga teacher. Yeah, that's what I do for a living. I, I, I coach yoga, teach yoga. And he was like, oh, my God, this lady here, she wants to learn yoga. She's been asking for ages to find her a coach. So he introduced me to her, and I got my first client. Just happened, this, this lady was a, a super cool Parisian chick. She was from a very wealthy family and she took me on. I think she fancied me a bit, but that didn't matter because she booked up a whole bunch of privates with me and she paid me in cash. So I had my first client. 
So all of a sudden, I think I was charging like £70 an hour or something. Or six, I can't even remember. It was like 10 years ago. So basically, I got myself a phone and then she would call me every now and then for a private. And anyway, this French lady, she started introducing me to her friends and her friend introduced me to her friend and so on and so forth. Anyway, cut a long story short, I was doing this for about eight to ten months. And within no time, I was, I think after the first year of coaching, I was teaching a thousand privates a year, which was completely insane. Basically, I built a business out of one client. And and you were teaching yoga as you'd learned it, or were you developing this method? So I was using a lot of my kind of the tools I got in prison to help people. I mean, I was challenged and presented with a lot of people that had issues. A lot of alcoholics, a lot of drug addicts, a lot of addictive people came through my door. Obviously because they were drawn to me because I could help them, because I'd experienced that myself. So I had the tools which to help them out. But essentially I was teaching yoga, yoga asanas, some meditative practices, but more than that, I was trying to build a daily practice into people's lives. And this was when I really started to embody movement and meditation. I mean, I was up at five o'clock every single day for years. You know, I would sit for two hours before I even left my front door. I did that for years. I was given a practice by a guy called Sri Opi Tiwadi, which is an Indian guru that I've been studying with in India. And I would go to his ashram maybe a month, two months a year and stay with him. So I was learning from him directly. So he gave me a practice, which was a daily practice, which I did systematically, methodically for years. So I was trying to integrate these practices into people's lives, which was working. The community in London was growing. I was getting more and more clients. And this went on for six years. In the meantime, I was developing the primal practice, which was the primal movement practice, which was a kind of quadrupedal bodywork practice because I was finding physically I wanted to be completely challenged and embodied completely. Yoga as a physical practice had holes in it, yeah? And so did the other practices. So I wanted to kind of create a fusion of practices that all went together functionally really well. Can you speak a little bit more about the methodology of Primal? I was very much inspired by Patabi Joyce, who was the founder of Ashtanga Yoga. So I studied Ashtanga for eight years. So what he developed was a practice that was not open to change. It was a systemized methodical practice that you did daily with one day off a week. The idea was that you got to know the practice off by heart, didn't need to think about the practice. Then you got to know the breath count that went with the practice and the number of the breath with the practice until you do it off by heart. Then you would do this practice until you got bored, fall in love with boredom, and then it became blissful. It became a daily practice. So I was very inspired by the whole system. But again, functionally, it didn't work for me. You know, I had structure, which was my body. You need to have a certain body type to do the yoga stuff. Some of these like very like flexible moves, which didn't work for me. I had structure, which was my knees. I broke my back in four places. A lot of stuff I couldn't do. And, I, I, and some of the deliveries of the system weren't authentic like they were when he first began it. So the inspiration I got was to develop a practice that was open to change that could be done daily, that was a complete physical embodiment. So over the years, I started to play around with a system of movement, which we now call Primal Moves. It's just a name. Primal is a significant word in my life, but I had to call it something. So I called it Primal Moves. But basically, it's an hour's practice, and it's done moving across the floor as a quadruped. So it represents the locomotive patterns of many animals. And it's a system of movement. So it will create huge effects on the body. 
Did you do that in London before you came to Ibiza, or did it, like it started coalesce in Ibiza? It started in London with the communities I had there. So I was using, not using them as guinea pigs, but I was experimenting with movement systems, movement patterns, how it was physically, what the physiological effects were, how the people took to it. It was a system that was created that helped to build a community because it was a strict where you couldn't talk. So there was this huge interaction of community building as well, which people absolutely love, which I think is one of the biggest aspects of Primal Moves is a community-driven brand. It wasn't the other way around. I didn't design a brand and then think, okay, I need to go and sell this. The community created the brand. The community created what Primal Moves is today. I learned from the community. Every single client that came into my studio was my teacher. I learned from them. So I'm really fortunate because in the last 10 years of coaching, I've had thousands and thousands of coaches and teachers because I learned from every single person that steps foot through my front door. So when I eventually arrived to Ibiza in 2016, I had all this background knowledge in movement. Even though when I came to Ibiza, that was not the reason I came here for. And the first weeks and months that I was here, I got to start knowing people and people were kind of asking me like, hey, what do you do? How come you're so fit? What do you do for a living? What's your history? People started to find out about my past. And I was quite discreet about my prison life. Even though it was documented in places, I wasn't verbally advertising myself, but a few people started to find out. But even more strangely was, as people got to know me, they were asking, could they come and train with me or practice with me in the mornings? So I said, of course you can. So I had a little house down in San Lorenzo, and every morning I'd wake up at 8 o'clock and go out on the terrace and practice, and people started to show up on my terrace to practice with me. So I did this daily. So I'd be out there seven days a week doing my practice and people started showing up. Anyway, cut a long story short, six months later, I walk out onto my terrace, there's 20 people standing there. They want to practice with me. So then I set about trying to find myself a studio. And through a couple of my friends and contacts on the island, they helped me find a warehouse. Blank canvas, 500 square meters, a floor space, big high ceiling, that was it. I walked into the space and I knew that was going to be the primal space. So I rented it. I refurbed it. I built a movement space in there with some co-work offices with two partners of mine. I went back to a, a very low wage, you know, because obviously I was just trying to rebuild a studio. Obviously, I had a ready-made community ready to move in already because I've been they've been practicing with my terrace. So we opened in 2016, 217. And the thing about me was I was just there every single day. I turned up every day. I showed up every day, and people loved it. I mean, Ibiza is quite an ethereal space. It's a bit ungrounded. So when they could go and see Nick every single day to practice, they loved it. And the community grew. And so did my development of the practice grow. So through the community in London, through the community here, I developed more the system because I had more clients coming to see me to move so I could observe their bodies, I could study their bodies, I could study the physiology, what was going on, the effects, the happiness it was creating in people, the community that was getting built. And that's what happened. And it's just progressed and developed over the past six years. And then at some point, the burners started coming. I got turned on to primal movements because there's a whole mess of people who go to Burning Man who come to Ibiza as well who are all obsessed with it. I'm not sure whether that was a noticeable kind of bump in the awareness and the people coming and that sort of thing. But when I came here during COVID, 
Primal was like, everybody was doing it. All the people who I knew from Burning Man who were here were all doing it. It was like a thing. It was everybody wanted to be a part of it. It was insane. I was, I was completely overwhelmed with the amount of people that were coming from the West Coast of the States, coming through Burning Man. They were bringing their friends. People from Mexico were coming, people from Miami, New York, all over Europe. Thousands of people came to train in the space and move in the space with me. They'd heard about the story. There was a bit of mystique about being in prison and what had gone on in isolation. They weren't quite sure, but the fact was there was this practice going on that not only challenged people physically, but it gave them a sense of well-being, community. And then I started touring. So then I had quite a lot of influential resourceful people that were asking me to go to Costa Rica, to Mexico City, to Tulum, to Miami to start doing residences in their retreats and hotels and, and, and places around. And so then it became even more popular. So then I started Nomadi in Tulum, which was really good because obviously, again, you had all the burners coming through Nomad. You had all the guys from Miami, New York, the tech guys, the crypto guys, the property guys, the entrepreneurs, everyone. So Nomadi was also a huge stepping stone for me in exposure. Then I went to Costa Rica to another place. And there's this kind of circuit that the burners take. You know, it goes through Mexico, Mexico City, Costa Rica. They go through Miami. They pop up into New York bounce maybe into LA, come into Europe, end up in Ibiza. It's a trail. So they all come through the space. And then they were all fascinated by the system, the space, my stories. So they were bringing their mates and they were bringing their friends. And now it's become a scalable system. And so as a scalable system, where would you like to see this go? Yeah, my main vision, my main mission is to facilitate movement into people's lives. That is my main goal, my main objective. I'm not so fussed about the money. It doesn't really bother me that much. Obviously, I, I get it. I need money. I need to live, pay my rent. But I've had money and I've lost it. I don't identify with being rich by having money or not anymore. My whole perception towards money is quite healthy. It's completely shifted. So my main goal is I want to build this community, this movement community globally. So very slowly, I would like to start opening studios you know, through the Americas and Europe. I don't want to scale massively, but what I want is very strong studios and communities building in cities. I don't want one studio in every single city, but maybe two or three in some key cities in the Americas and Europe that can actually grow this community. And you've trained other teachers because you need that leadership. Or, or maybe you don't. I don't know if it's just the method will be robust enough or if you need well, someone like yourself. Look, if, if I build a system that I want to scale just around me, it'll be very difficult. Even though I am primal and what it stands for, the message, the journey is me. I do need coaches. I have two full-time coaches here, which are amazing guys in their 30s, which I've coached, and uh, they're also movers themselves. One's a, a break dancer, so they're really cool guys, and they're learning the system and the method. And I've just coached another 18 people from Spain, Paris, Italy, and Miami. So the idea is I'm going to start doing coaching training into my system and my method and my philosophy, which eventually, hopefully, if we do open studios, these guys will work in those studios to continue facilitating my system and method into people's lives. That's my main objective. And so they'll come here to Ibiza, I assume, yeah, and they'll do teacher Ibiza. training, and then Yeah, they've got to come students. here. They've got to come to the source. They've got to meet the community in Ibiza. This is where it happens. This is where the love is. This is where it all goes on. So when I brought the 18 people here for the training, they were completely blown away. They fell in love with the system, the method, with me, the space, the community. They loved it. They found their home. And Ibiza plays a big part in that. The space here, they were doing class with everybody else. So these coaches, I made them do two classes a day with everyone else so they could understand what it was I was trying to achieve. 
It wasn't so much about the technicality of the training because they're all coaches anyway. But it's about understanding me, my system, my philosophy and how I want to integrate that into people's lives. Well, the burners have come to your Mecca and I understand that this year you're going to come to ours. I am. You're going to Black Rock City for the first time first this year. First time ever as a Burning Man. I understand that Burning Man can be quite hostile and pretty <laughs> out there. But one thing you can be rest assured is I will be there daily doing my practice. And I can't wait to do like a handstand on the player. Oh, yeah. Just run across the player in some, doing some of my moves. I mean, that would be amazing. You're going to have a hell of a time. Yeah, no, I with, can't wait. With all the experiences that you've had and how much robust joie de vie you yeah. bring to everything, you're going to enjoy Burning yeah. Man. I, I can't wait. I really am looking forward to it. It's going to be like the cherry on the cake of my entire journey. <laughs> well, well, I don't want to set your expectations that high. You've been through a lot, but you'll definitely have a very warm welcome on the playa. And I think that what you've created and what you're offering is going to be incredible there, just as it is here on this beautiful island, just as it's going to be as you're proliferating and around the world. Amazing. Thanks, Eamon. Nick, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. We have a single minute left before your hard stop. So in this minute, for people who've been listening, can people learn about Primal Movement online? Can people do coaching with you? Can people follow you on Instagram? Where should our listeners who've been inspired by your story go to learn more? So the best place to find me is on Instagram, and that's Primal Moves Ibiza or PrimalMoves.com. Great. Well, we'll put those in the show notes. Nick, what a pleasure to get to know you better. What Thank an you. incredible story. It's been such an honor to Amazing. be with you today. Thank you for letting me share. Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you like the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival, and I'll see you on the dance floor.